1 Samuel. For the last couple of years, we've been hanging out in the book of Ephesians. We're going to switch gears this morning and start hanging out in the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel, we'll start this morning. I want us to, to think about the book. It's 31 chapters, and as I, I look at this, Old Testament's different than a lot of the New Testament in that most of the Old Testament, or at least this section, is narrative, and narratives, you take larger chunks so um, have no fear, we won't, if we you know, spent two years on six chapters of Ephesians, how many years are we going to spend on 31 chapters of Samuel? We won't be here near as long because narrative, you, you go fat through it faster because you've got to get large chunks to get the story, the point, the message that uh, God has for us. As I was looking at 1 Samuel, reading through the 31 chapters, kind of stepping back and saying, okay, what's the point, God? What's the main point here? If I have one point for the whole 31 chapters, I want the people of God at New Covenant to, to have a grasp of, of, of the message. So, so what is it? So as I, I thought through that, um, it just dawned on me that, well, the book is easily divided into the life of three people. And then as you look at the life of those three people, you do begin to see one theme that's going all the way through it. The three people are, first of all, Samuel. It's named after him. Samuel is a prophet. He's a priest. But maybe more importantly here at this point, he's the last judge uh, that we come across in the Old Testament. So as you think about Old Testament timeline, as the people of God come out of Egypt and they're um, controlled and directed and ruled by Moses, and then they, um, Joshua leads them into the promised land, and after that we come into this period of the judges. So first, um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua leading them in, um, and then we get judges. And judges is that time where the men of God, the people of God, do what is right in their own eyes. Joshua, excuse me, Samuel's raised up to be the last one of those leaders in this time frame when people were doing what's right in their own eyes. God raised up judges to lead them. Samuel was the last one of those. And he was wholeheartedly living for God. And it grieved him when the people of God did what was right in their own eyes and didn't follow God. And then Joshua takes us a step in. So he's got a step over here in the book of Judges, but he's also stepping into the time of kings when God raises up a king to lead his people. Samuel is the one who anoints the first king. And the first king is Saul. That's the second character of the book. So he's the first king, and he's not so much all in. He's not wholehearted for God. It grieves Samuel. God allows Samuel to anoint the second king, who is a man after God's heart, and that's David. And that's the book of Samuel, that we go from Samuel wholeheartedly in love with and living for God, to Saul, first king, who does, goes about it in a half-hearted way, to David, who then is wholeheartedly devoted for God again. So as you think about Samuel, uh, the first seven chapters... It's the life of Samuel leading the people of God. You get to chapter 8, Israel says, we want a king. So you get a king from chapters 8 uh, to 15. Saul is disobedient for the last time. God rejects him. Chapter 16, Samuel goes and he gets to anoint David. And so from chapter 16 to chapter 31, we have this exchange between Saul and David till David becomes king. So uh, as you think about the book, I think you can get it that way. Now, I picked, I picked the, the, the language or the title, Wholehearted Living for God. And I want us to think about that a little bit because we have it expressly said in Scripture, David was a man whose heart was completely God's. He had a heart after God. Scripture talks about that for David. And we will also see it talks about that for Samuel. His whole heart was there for God. So as I'm looking at that, I got whole heart, whole heart, and then I got in the middle, half heart, Saul. And maybe the big picture, if you get it, 
we need to stop, stop right now and ask ourselves, God, am I the man in the middle? You can look to your right or left, most of you, except for the people on the end. There, there's somebody beside you and there's somebody after you. You can look in your life. Somebody came before you and somebody came at, is going to come after you. You're in the middle somewhere. Or do we have people before us that are wholly devoted to the Lord and people who will come after us who are wholly devoted to the Lord? We don't want to be that person in the middle who's, who's devoted only in a half-hearted fashion. We want to be one of those leaders on one end or the other that's wholeheartedly living for and loving the Lord. And that message screams through this book. I chose wholehearted and not all in. All in's a catchphrase today. And it's, so, you know, if I wanted to be current, that's what I would use. But the more I thought about all in, are you all in for Jesus? We need to be all in. I mean, that's just, everybody said, oh, that's so cool to use that phrase. But I don't know, I, you know, if, if you're playing poker, not that I've played a lot, when you're all in, all your chips, you slide them in. All your cards are in. Which means what? You have nothing. It's all in. And even the world's culture who likes all in, they struggle with being all in because being all in, it, there's a sense in which it means exhausted. It's over. It's done. And so they don't want to... They don't know how to deal with that, so they've come up with this new, it's an old phrase, is I'm not just all in, which means 100%, but I want to be 110%. And how do you give 110%? It's like, I thought you only had 100%. And so we, we come up now with this phrase, and that's more what wholehearted devoted is. I'm not only all in, but I'm all in, and I'm not exhausted, I'm still living and I'm living in a devoted fashion. All of me is there in a wholehearted manner for Christ. And that's what I want you to think about. If you like all in, fine. But I think we're, we're more than all in for God. We're living for God wholeheartedly, constantly. We don't exhaust that. We give it all, but we have always more to give. And that's what I see in the life of Samuel. That's what I see in the life of David. Let's look at, as we look at each of these men this morning, Samuel, Saul, and David, and begin to see this flow through the book. The book starts, chapter 1, follow with me, verse 3, with a story about a very religious man named Elkna. Verse 3, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and he had two sons, Eli, uh, and, excuse me, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. Now, wait, before you go any further, remember the time frame. We are in the time of the judges. What do people do in the time of the judges? Whatever's right in their own eyes. And mostly that is not about worship. So, in the midst of people doing what's right in their own eyes, this book starts with a shining star of a man who yearly picks up his family, puts them all on donkeys or carts, and he travels for the sole purpose of worship. He screams the message, worship greatly matters to me and my family. As for me, he picks up from Joshua, um, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. So the book begins with someone devoted to the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And he's equally yoked with a wife who wants the same thing. His wife Hannah, uh, verse 9, says, Then Hannah rose from after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple, and she gr was greatly distressed, and she prayed the Lord to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, 
then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come upon his head. Now, the razor not on his head, what that means is I want him to be a, a priest. I want him to be one who keeps the Nazarite vow, a Nazarite priest. I want my son to be a spiritual leader in this spiritual wasteland. God, we are here to worship my husband and I. And we are wholeheartedly devoted. I weep because you've not given me a son. And I want to be the mother who births a son who is wholeheartedly given to the Lord. And so, Lord, I make a vow that if you will give me such a son, I will not keep him back from that profession. I will do everything in my power to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and give him into this priestly role. I will dedicate myself to that purpose. He will be dedicated to that purpose. Wow, what a beginning in a spiritual time of drought. And we have this, this family that wants to raise, you know, is praying for, wants to raise a godly child for the Lord. Uh, verse 20, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked of him from the Lord. And then she keeps her vow, verse 28. So I've also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's dedicated to the Lord. And catch this, circle the word he. Who's that? And he worshiped the Lord there. So she's praying for a son. God gives her a son. She takes the son to the priest it says, this is the one for whom I prayed that he would be a priest. And now he's a young child. She waited, it says, there till he's weaned. He's a young child. He gets to this place of worship where the priest is at. And the young child bows down in worship. In this time, this day and age, that's unheard of. That's the beginning of the life of Samuel. From an early age, wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And so they raise him there as one who's going to be spending his life in service, committed to the worship of God and leading others as a priest in the worship of God. Uh, he becomes uh, a leading prophet. Look over at chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan even to Bathsheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. So it's like, okay, this is unusual. He's a little child coming to the priest. He's worshiping God as a kid, but it grew, and it grew, and it gained momentum to the place that all of Israel knew, this kid's special. This kid will be our prophet and our priest. Everybody begins to see that because God let not a single one of his words fail. If Samuel said it, it came about. It was true. You see the hand of the Lord upon him. Verse 21, And so the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So people began to see God. They began to see God at work through Samuel. God raising him up. Now, at the same time that was happening, keep going into chapter 4, something else was happening. Look at chapter 4. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So now he's starting to preach. He's a prophet and a priest. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer. While the Philistines camped at Aphek, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies." 
This is typical God in a box, okay? Literal box, the ark. The people of God are thinking, doing what's right in their own eyes. One of the things they thought is, we could earn God's favor, we can maneuver God, we can manipulate God. God's in the ark. Hey, we're losing, we're losing good men in battle. We just lost 4,000 men in battle. Maybe we could take God into battle with us. He's in the box, right? And so they take the ark of God into battle. Now, before we get to that battle, see what's happening. While God is raising up Samuel, he's killing the leaders of Israel. He's raising up a new leader. He's killing, eliminating the old leaders. So you begin to see shift in leadership, in ministry, in who has the word, who has the say. Well, uh, so they, they go into battle uh, with the ark. Uh, it, you probably know the story down chapter 4. Uh, the Philistines capture the ark, and then they kill the priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, and then Eli, the priest, that's verse 17. So the last phrase, Hophni and Phinehas are dead. The ark of God has been taken. When Eli hear, hears that, verse 18, he falls over and he dies. So God's not only eliminating the tough men, the, the leaders of our army, he's now eliminating the priest. He's got Eli out of the way. He's got Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, out of the way. As Samuel's rising up, who's going to be the next prophet and priest? Well, it's Samuel, and God's been making all of this happen and then verse 21, and she called um, the boy and said, Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed Israel because the ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. So her husband died, father-in-law died. Verse 22, she's thinking the glory of God is over, it's died. But see, we get to see, no, 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 you're missing something with Samuel. God's raising Samuel up. He's the new priest. He's the new leader. He has the word of the Lord, and he's going to lead us. And he is a man who's wholeheartedly devoted to God. Now, before we get to some of that, stop and apply this again. Where are we? Are we one of those people that really needs to be eliminated? Are we one of those people that put God in a box? Uh, Joe spoke about it and prayed about it in some of his prayer. At times we seek to earn God's favor by things we do. Do we say, God, you've got to bless me. I've, I've prayed to you. God, you must bless me because, you know, I, I sought a godly husband or a godly wife. I've been faithful in marriage. I've gone to church. I've given my tithe. Um, I've been keeping your commands. I've been raising up my kids for you. God, you must bless me. I call that 1-800-go-bless-me, you know, religion. Uh, that's what they thought. That's what was right in their eyes, that God should do this. If, if we do these things, God, you must do these things. This view that we can manipulate or maneuver God to give us what we want. That's not a prayer for what God wants. That's a prayer for what we want. That's the way people were living. Samuel's being raised differently. And Samuel's prayers are for what God wants. So evaluate your prayers. Why are you in this? Are you in it for blessing? Or are you in it to bless? To bless God. To praise God. To give all of your life for God. Big difference, isn't it? And God's raising up Samuel as one who's in it to be completely God's. How, how, do we, how do we escape that mentality that God should bless me because of anything or something I've done? How do you escape that? I, I, th I don't think you can escape that until you come to grips with your own depravity. That I am totally depraved. I can do nothing that would merit God's favor. Praying should not make him bless me. Going to church should not make him bless me. I could do nothing. I mean, to use Joe's illustration, 
everything I do is just a badly driven nail in a wop-salted, wop-wop-jawed, you know, um, uh, sawhorse. Trying to think of what you said. Uh, you know, uh, the best thing I could do is just a crazily driven nail in a sawhorse to gain God's favor. Should that make Him bless me? Absolutely not. So the way for us to escape this mentality is that God should bless me is to really come to grips with the fact I am totally depraved and without Him I can do nothing. That it is all of grace. I am what I am by the grace of God alone. The people of God missed it then and many of the people of God miss it today. And they're living these religious lives thinking, I do this because if I do this, God blesses me. And not seeing, you know, that's not why God is blessing you at all. There's nothing we do earns or merits God's favor. Well, they go into battle, they lose the ark, lots more people die. And then I won't, we'll get into it later, chapter 5 and 6. God brings back the ark without them. None of them were there. None of them went after it. God brings it back. We, God doesn't need us. We desperately need God. And that's what we see in the life of Samuel. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it, this is after God brings it back to them, they take it, into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Verse 2, and the, from that day that ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. The time was long for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That ark will stay there until David moves it. Samuel spoke to, to all the house of Israel saying, so now he's got Israel's attention. And Samuel preaches and this is his message two things you know what do you what do we need guys for a revival what's going to turn this around for us number one return number two revere number one return if you return to the lord how all your heart that's where samuel was wholeheartedly devoted return to the lord with all your heart not this half-hearted bless me lord because i did something but with all your heart, even if you slay me, I'm still all yours. That's wholeheartedness. If you will return that way, and then number two, uh, and remove uh, the foreign gods and the asterisks and, from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the asterisks, etc. So two things are going on there. Number one, return. We, in New Testament, repent, give up, lose, throw away this old life of half-hearted living for yourself. You've got to give up all your idols, the things you're living for. Remove those. And then start revering, start worshiping wholeheartedly God. That's the key, is understanding how to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. You can't get there without removing something. Remove this view of man that you are something without Christ. You're not. Remove this that God's a good luck charm. That if you rub him the right way, he'll rub you the right way. No, uh-uh. That's so much the view. You've got to remove all that. So false God mentality. You have to... Be delivered from it. Serve God only. Deliverance comes through revival. Uh, and this revival is not something we do. It's something God does. How do we get to that place of revival? Notice again before I move on. What's happened to get us there? Prayer was number one. There was a husband and a wife who prayed for a godly son. And a godly leader is number two. They were praying that God would raise up godliness that God would raise up holiness, that because they lived in a land where the leaders were corrupt. And they were praying fervently, God, you have to change the heart. We don't want just a son. We want a son with a changed heart. 
that's wholly devoted, that does return to you with all his heart. Samuel got it from birth. He lived it, and then he preached it. That We must remove all of our idols and go to God with all our heart. And then secondly, we must be. Not only should we raise up spiritual leaders, we must be spiritual leaders, faithful leaders who are leading God's people faithfully, which is exactly what uh, Samuel was doing. Verse uh, of chapter 7, uh, verse 4, he says, Serve the Lord alone. Verse 5, he says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel gets the whole package. Not only was he prayed for that he would be godly, so you pray for spiritual leaders if you want revival, and then secondly, you get leaders who pray. And that's the kind of leader Samuel was. He was a man of prayer. God's raised me up through prayer. I will devote myself to prayer. And I will pray for you because you can't do anything in your own strength. And I can't do anything in my own strength. We need God. Let us pray. Let us worship. That's wholehearted, living, and loving for God. Well, so that went on for just a little while. You get to chapter 8, and Saul enters the picture. Verse Chapter 8, the people of God want a king. Verse 5, it says, And they said, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways now. Appoint a king for us to be judges like all the nations. We want a king like everybody else. Everybody else around us that we're fighting against, they have a king. We want a king. Like, okay, I mean, just think from a human practical standpoint, all that's happened, if you were Samuel, to be raised up to be the leader. And you've given away your childhood, your teenage years, to now to be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And you've served the Lord. And every time the people of God needed something, you've prayed for them. And you've told them the truth, and everything you said has been right on. And now these very people come to you and say, we're kind of tired of you. You're getting old, man. You need to kind of just cruise on out the pasture. What we need is military might and power that we see in other nations. We need a king. If I were Samuel, I would be crushed to see the people I love, the people I care about, people I've invested myself into, the people I've spent night after night praying for and weeping for. See, those very people say, yeah, but we don't love you so much. And we'd like to see you replaced. You know, can you make that happen for us? I mean, that's, that's a crusher. There's more to the life of Samuel. Samuel, he's still wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord still wholeheartedly devoted to these people who are obviously hurting him. Think about how you would react if you're pouring yourself into your neighbor, trying to love them, and they just cut you off and reject you. After you've given them blessing after blessing and prayer after prayer and so much of your time and devotion has been for them. Or your church and they, they leave you. One of the things we learn from this, this man is that you just still do what God wants you to do. You don't do what's right in your own eyes. What's right in your own eyes is, okay, well, forget you. But Samuel doesn't do that. He continues to pray, continues to serve. He continues to give him the word of God, even in the midst of all that. Look at chapter 12, verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God. So that this is after they got the king confirmed who saw. Pray for yourselves to the Lord um, your God so that we may not die. Samuel says, okay, now you got the king. You realize you sinned, right? He keeps preaching, even though they're rejecting him. You realize you're sinning, right? He says, pray for yourselves to the Lord your God so that you may not die. I mean, your sin's bad. For we have added to all our sins this evil 
by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You've committed all this evil. You're right. When people come confessing sin, don't say, oh, that's not too bad. The right answer is, no, you're right to confess sin. You're evil. That's what Samuel did here. Verse um, 20, uh, he says, do not fear. You've committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord, how? With all your heart. You must not turn aside, uh, for, for then you would go after futile things which can not profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you will still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So the message is the same. Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. The message is, I would be sinning if I don't pray for you. The message is, you would be sinning if you're not praying for your neighbor. If you're not praying for those people in your sphere of ministry. God has placed you where you are to minister wholeheartedly for Him. And even if in that sphere of ministry, everyone rejects you, you still would be sinning if you reject them. We need to be loving and ministering to the people God has put in our sphere of ministry. I consider it a deep honor to be your pastor. And even though you hurt me or forsake me, my feet are firmly planted here to love you and to care for you and to speak to you and to pray for you. And I sin when I do not do that. Or when I do not do that wholeheartedly. That's who we need to be. Wholeheartedly devoted to the ministry God has given us with love. And that means loving real people. Speaking to real people. Living to minister to real people. Even when it's not convenient. Even when it hurts. Even when all you feel is depressed and rejected. That's where Samuel was. That was not where Saul was. And that was not where a lot of the people was. Uh, they raised up Saul, uh, chapter 13, and they go to war. Saul was, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 42 years. So this is a long time. You basically have kind of three men in Samuel and about 40 years apiece. Samuel's 40 years, Saul's 40 years, David's 40 years. So you get these men um, in this time frame and the different ministries that are going on there. But they go into battle, uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Uh, Saul was supposed to wait, he, verse, and he doesn't. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But he doesn't wait quite long enough because he had this idea of what was right in his eyes, that he needed to do something. And so he only follows the Lord half-heartedly. Samuel comes to him, verse 13, and said to Saul, Saul, you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. Um, Saul really just did not have respect for God and God's designs. He still wants to live life the way he thinks it ought to be lived. I think we ought to do church this way basically instead of God what do you want it's like I think and Saul was a good example of I think this is what we should do when people come to you and say well I think this follow it up quickly well where's your chapter and verse on that because I'm thrilled to hear what you think but where does God say where does the word of the Lord express that thought you have because we're wholeheartedly following the Lord, not you. We should never be following what people think, even if what they think is good. We should be following the Lord 
And we need to back that up. We need to back up our thoughts with his. Saul, uh, just a quick review. No respect for God's commands. He was cruel to his son, Jonathan, in chapter 14. He had better plans than God in chapter 15. God said, I want you to go wipe out everybody and every animal, every woman, every child of the Amalekites. God says, that's my plan. Saul says, I think that's a little excessive and a little cruel, and I'm not going to do it quite that way. I've got a better plan. Well, that was Saul. God rejects him as a result of it. Saul was jealous. He eventually, since God's not listening to him, he appeals to a, a witch. He wasn't wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, and God removes him. Well, let's move to David. Chapter 16, after God rejects Saul, he raises up David. Chapter 16, verse 1, we get that transition. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? You, you know, that's what I was trying to show you a minute ago. When they raised up a king, when Saul took the throne, Samuel's weeping. And he can't get over it. It's like, God, how did you let this happen? We now have a, a leader who's just half-heartedly in this thing for you. And God basically comes to Samuel and says, Okay, uh, Samuel, I have rejected Saul, and I'm going to raise up a wholehearted leader. Quit crying. Let's move on. So from chapter 16, we're going to move on. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn, horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself from among his sons. Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. I mean, this is, this is crucial historical stuff going on here. But I've got somebody now from the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. He's going to be the next king, and he will be on the throne, and the Christ will come from the line of David. His name's going to be David. That's where we're, we're getting to. And it's cool when you begin to get into the life of David after you've left the life of Saul, because David is wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. He's a man after God's own heart. Chapter 16, verse 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, he anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and catch this, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose, and he went to Ramah. Well, uh, it's, it's neat to see what God blesses Samuel with. Samuel was so grief-stricken over Saul, God allows him to anoint David, and he also allows him to see the battle between uh, David and Goliath and get to see uh, God's people starting to be led again by a man who's wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord before Samuel dies. So to see the impact of Samuel's prayers or go back a generation, Elkna and Hannah's prayers and how it revives the people of God says a lot about our need for praying, again, for spiritual leaders, and then getting leaders who pray. In other words, our tendency in America is to elect leaders, church and in the world, to elect leaders who represent us. That's wrong. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We don't want leaders to represent us. We want leaders who represent God to us. How do you know you've got a leader who represents God because he's the leader who's desperate for God. He's always on his knees praying to God. So you pray for the leader, and then you get a leader who's praying for you. He's not doing what's right in his own eyes. So that's who Samuel was, and that's who David is as well. I can't do this in my own strength. How, how, do, we, how, how do we get that into our life? I, I refer you back again to Ephesians, we were just there in chapter 5, uh, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember, David was, from that point on, he was filled with the Spirit. Knowing you need the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5, verse 19, speak to one another 
in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even our Father. Uh, it's always, 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 always praying, singing, praising, giving our life to God. And that's clearly the life of David. God raised up a leader after his own heart that was constantly praying, constantly singing, constantly speaking to the people of God in Psalms. David wrote most of our Psalms, Psalms and um, hymns, speaking to one another in love, the very words of God. Well, uh, Saul rejected, David's raised up, David grows, chapter 17, verse 37 me from the Paul he's speaking to, to Saul at this point David said the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine and Saul said to David go and may the Lord be with you all right one thing's clear to everybody the Lord's with David the Lord was with Samuel the Lord is not with Saul and so they got this Goliath in front of them and David says I can take that guy how can you take that guy well I can't really, but it's the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from lions and bears. The Lord will deliver me from, from this guy. I believe that. I'm convinced of that. This is what God does in and through me. This is my life. I'm wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. God w works these things. And then notice why he killed Goliath. He even tells Goliath this. Um, chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, Goliath, you come to me with a sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David doesn't go out into that battle and say, I got this. He says, God's got this. Uh, this is the day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? Here it is. So that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by the sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. It's the Lord. Who delivers David um, yes he killed Goliath but why did he do it evangelism he had an evangelistic message the reason I come to you Goliath is because there's a God over Israel that we are to serve wholeheartedly a lot of my people don't get that you clearly don't get that but that's why I'm here I'm here to live my life for God and Him only. And He declares it. The battle's the Lord's. The heart of the matter is always the heart. Are your hearts wholeheartedly devoted to God? David's was. Samuel's was. And he fought Goliath. How do you minister to your neighbor? How do you minister to people in your sphere of influence? It's do you realize I'm here, I'm, I'm loving you, and I will keep loving you, and even if you reject me, I'll love you. Why? Because of the Lord, not because of me. There's that evangelistic flavor to it always, a, a way where we're declaring that God is in the picture, God's in my life, God is why I do what I do. You should serve the Lord. That's our message. You should live for the Lord. That's what I do, and I do it because that's, that's the only place there's hope. That's the only place there's victory. That's the only place there's truth and surety. That's the only place where we're fully confirmed. confirmed. Uh, the rest of the book of Samuel deals with Saul pursuing David and David living his life honorably and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And then 2 Samuel, we pick up Samuel on the throne. Let me give you five quick points of application. Number one, just quick overview. What have I said? I've said that divine blessing is not for becoming bigger or better. Divine blessing is not for becoming bigger or better. God does not bless you to make you bigger or better. God blesses you for His glory. We're in a world that gives you lies. 
God will bless you and you'll have more and more and more. And a lot of people start praying, trying to man- manipulate God for more and more and more. God's not blessing you unless you've got more numbers and more nickels. There's lots of churches who say, well, God's blessing us. That's why we got more numbers and more nickels. And they miss the message. How many thousands of people does God have to kill before they realize that's not the truth? God was the one doing the killing in this book. Killing his own people who think, God, why is God not blessing me with more numbers and more money? And God says, because you're not wholeheartedly devoted to me. You need to be wholeheartedly. The blessing is not about being bigger and better. The blessing is about being wholeheartedly in worship and in praise to God. And that's a message that's repeated over and over throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we have this mega church mentality that we're only a church of significance if we have huge numbers and huge bank accounts so that people can write books about us. And that's not the message of the Bible. Sometimes God does give us great numbers and great money. Sometimes he does, but that's not the message. The message is hearts that are holy, the Lord's. Holy worshiping him. Let him deal with the numbers and the money. Our passion should be to worship him and to adore him wholeheartedly. Second, holy prayers are heard prayers. As people are praying for right things, God literally answers. Do you, how do you know if you're praying a good prayer? You know if you're praying a good prayer, if it's according to the will of God. Want a quick reference verse, 1 John. 14. This is the confidence which we have before Him. So you come before God in prayer. This is your confidence. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's your confidence. Our prayers need to be consistent with the will of God. Hannah's prayer was consistent with the will of God. God, we need a spiritual leader. We need a godly elder. We need a godly prophet. Eli and his sons are not pulling it off. And so she's praying. And this mother of God influenced nations through that prayer. Praying a godly prayer. And Elkner, I think, joins her in that prayer. And then Samuel's raised up and begins to pray like that. Guys, I don't care what you say. Yeah, what you're doing is sinful. We're only going to pray for And we're only going to do what's consistent with the will of God. That kind of living, that kind of praying is effective. It's righteous. Check your prayers by the word of God. Uh, One great principle, I I learned this once in a small group prayer time. The the leader of the prayer time says, okay, let's all share our prayer requests. And so we all shared a prayer request. He says, now let's go back around the room and for the prayer for the request you made, you must tell me a chapter and verse out of the Bible that would substantiate why that's a good prayer. Like, oh, can I change my prayer request? Oh, so you were going to pray bad prayers? Why would you do that? That's foolishness in the face of God. If, you, if you're going to pray, pray a prayer that's going to be heard. Pray a prayer that matters. Matters to who? To God. Because if it matters to God, if it's according to His will, He's going to jump in. And you work together to see God bless and do what His will is. Number three, pray for those who pray. If you find somebody who prays like that, pray for them. Say, Lord, keep them. We need them. We need people who pray, whose face is always before the Lord. We, this whole book revolves around the need for a Hannah. We needed her. We need mothers who pray. We need fathers who pray godly prayers. I hate losing people in old age. Why? Because the old, the old saints are the ones who get this. 
And I, as a preacher, know I've just lost a prayer warrior. I pray for those who pray because those who pray matter. They change the course and the life of a church. Number four, serve through rejection and mistreatment. Already dealt with that. You may be one who's been mistreated and hurt and rejected and you feel all alone and isolated. Continue to serve. Realize you would be sinning to stop now. I, I can't stop now. I will continue what God has called me to do. I will continue to pray for even if people don't respond in love or in kind. Number five, God's pleasure is not upon the men who are good enough. Over and over you see that in Sam. Saul was good enough. He was handsome enough. He was tall enough. He was strong enough. I, we don't do examinations of officers or stuff much. I, I don't do that at Presbyterian anymore. But I used to do that, and as I would examine people, I said, why, does, why are you here? Why, why, in your estimation, does God want you here? And I used to just infuriate me for somebody to say, well, I'm, I'm as good as someone else. I'm thinking, ah, oh, I hate that. You're not to be in office or a leader of God's people because you're good enough. We don't need good enough. We need people who are desperate for God, who realize they are helpless without Christ. People who realize they can do nothing that is worthy without God. We need a Samuel. We need a David. We don't need a Saul. So ask yourself who you are. You don't want to be good enough. You want to understand, I am so depraved without Christ, I am nothing. I want to be wholeheartedly devoted to Him and filled with His Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Samuel. And may we, we glean from this book as we've taken this bird's eye view that it's a book that can teach us much about prayer, about loving, about living, and doing it in a wholehearted manner. Forgive us, low Lord, half-hearted saints. How much have we done half-heartedly? Have mercy upon us. Let us repent. Let our idols be removed. Let us return and be fully, wholly devoted to you. For we ask for mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.